Hello and welcome to another special bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. This bonus episode was inspired entirely by a mind-blowing fact I learned this week, which is kind of a fact on top of a fact. It's actually more like a fourth-degree fact. So you've probably heard at some point in your life a debate on the plural of octopus. And it usually goes like this. Someone will say octopuses, then someone else will say, you mean octopi, and then the real nerd in the group will go, actually, the proper word is octopodes. And doing this podcast, as long as we have, we have definitely come across articles using the word octopodes. But I just learned this week that as a Greek word, it's actually pronounced octopodes. And furthermore, in a similar fashion, the plural of platypus is actually platypodes. So I no longer know what's up and what's down, but I'm always willing to learn. So in the spirit of that, we've put together a collection of articles about weird animals that includes both octopodes and platypodes, neither of which we will say correctly in this recording. So feel free to share this newfound knowledge with your friends and families during your holiday gatherings this week, and we look forward to being back soon. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And these were some damn interesting weeks. First link. All right. Well, what is the one thing that we all learned about camels in elementary school? They uh, they have water in their humps. No, it's fat. You are correct. Oh. It, it is not water, despite what they tell you in early childhood when we're all so young and impressionable. Ugh. The title of the article is "Do Camels Really Have Water in Their Humps?" As with all question headlines, the answer is no. There are <laughs> two main aspects to the article. Number one is how do camels go for so long without water? And two, what's in the hump? And <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the answer to that second question is fat. Like a bear storing up for winter or any other animal, really, camels can store excess fat in their hump so they can live off of it for up to five months without food. And in fact, mm. when a camel has gone for a long time without food, though we don't see it very often today because most of our camels are in zoos or in circuses or something, the hump actually flops over like a deflated <gasps> balloon. Oh. What? Yeah. I'm currently resisting the temptation to Google deflated. <laughs> so, interestingly, baby camels are not born with a hump, and they don't actually get one for the first 10 months or so because every nutrient they consume goes straight towards growth. So, it's actually hmm. really important for camels to be born in the right season, assuming they're wild and not just cared for. Because after they wean from their mothers, they have to have enough time to build up a hump in order to make it through their first dry season. So it's almost like those humps have to be correctly mature. Right, right. I'm sorry. They've got I'm to... sorry. <laughs> so, they're lovely, those camel humps. That's okay, right. They're, they're lovely camel humps. <laughs> <laughs> Incidentally, they do discuss camels with one hump and two humps. And they say that it does not appear that the two humped camels are able to store any more fat than the one-humped camels, they just put it in two places instead of one. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's no definitive explanation as to why camels store their fat vertically instead of around their stomach like every other animal. But one theory is because being wider would expose them to more overhead sunlight and would also Ooh. cause them to retain more heat around the center of their bodies. So packing it all on top helps keep them from overheating in the environment that they typically evolved in. 
Hmm. As to the question of water, it is actually a myth that they can go for ridiculously long times with no water at all. What? They do need, I mean, they need less than most animals, but they do need some. The, mm-hmm. the truth is they just need very little water compared to most animals. And they have several really cool mechanisms in their body to help stretch those water-free time frames. Hmm. So first, they can drink up to 30 gallons of water in a sitting. But it doesn't go in the hump. It just goes kind of circulating through their bodies like it would for any animal. I'm sorry. You said 30 gallons? Yes. They can, like, I mean, they have massively stretchable stomachs, I guess. I don't know. Wow. But, but yeah, I mean, they just get really bloated and waterlogged and kind of, you know, waddle around. (laughs) And second, their kidneys are extremely efficient at removing toxins. So they can pee much less often and still get rid of what they need to. So basically, ca- nice. camel pee is like super toxic. Like, do not go anywhere Ooh. near that stuff because it is, it is wow. highly concentrated. <laughs> also, their stools are almost completely dry. They're like little rocks, basically. They don't lose any water in that. And then third, they actually have a structure in their nose that dehydrates their breath as they exhale. So they lose very little through water vapor. Huh. Yeah. And what I think this means, and I may be wrong, but I think that if you took a camel to a very cold climate, their breath wouldn't make little clouds of water vapor like ours does. Oh. I, yeah, I don't know if that's true because I was, I was thinking about it. I was like, is that the moisture from our actual breath or is that the moisture in the air that is being condensed by the warmth of our breath? And I don't know. I didn't look it up. Nor does it seem particularly <laughs> ethical to test that by bringing a camel to some frozy, right. icy, like, all right, buddy, just breathe it out. We're just going to watch you shiver and breathe. Right. You have to, not natural. You got to put them in a parka because they're not going to have any body fat around their middle oh, to keep them warm. You know, oh, camel in a parka. <laughs> well, and maybe that's why they became famous for uh, smoking was to make up for the lack of water vapor. They're jealous. They want something to come out of their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am making making mean comments about camels. Camels don't smoke, kids. It's wrong. Don't. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Gizmodo has a very tantalizing headline, as if the platypus couldn't get any weirder. Oh, goodness. Oh, boy. <laughs> so we all know the platypus is a pretty special creature, right? Mm-hmm. It kind of looks like a half a dozen different animals rolled into one. But it turns out they were hiding yet another conspicuous feature. They can glow in the dark. Whoa. Whoa what? Okay. <laughs> I know. I know. Just hold on to your <laughs> wombat butt skull right now, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not enough for it to be a mammal that lays eggs, right? It has a duck-like bill. It's got webbed feet. It hunts using electroreception, which the article just kind of like casually tosses out there. Never <laughs> encountered that before. Right. But it also glows green under ultraviolet light because, oh. of course, it does. <laughs> so this is so, like, I mean, there have been a bunch of animals that they're like just now figuring out, oh, hey, some animals can see ultraviolet light. Maybe we should see what they look like under ultraviolet light. Yeah, it's an exclusive oh. club, I think, in part because it's somewhat new, but it's one of only three known biofluorescent mammals. So we ah. do know about a lot of like biofluorescent, you know, stuff in the ocean. We've seen those cool videos of like rave coasts and things like that. But the platypus does stand alone as the only monotreme or mm. egg-laying mammal that can pull off this trick. The other biofluorescent mammals are possums and flying squirrels. But a team involved in the new study led by biologist Paula Spaeth Anich from Northland College were the ones who discovered biofluorescence in flying squirrels last year. And the discovery happened by accident. They were doing night surveys of lichens, of all things, 
and their field observations were later confirmed with specimens of flying squirrels kept at a museum. So Mm. they decided to try their luck with another nocturnal crepuscular mammal. Mm -hmm. And so for the new study, the team analyzed three museum platypus specimens. Currently, the platypus is a near-threatened species and with a population trend in decline, so it kind of made sense to look at specimens in the museum, right? So platypus fur looks brown when you're just looking at it in visible light, but as the new research shows, the fur glows green or even cyan under UV light. Hmm. Wow. See, now this sounds dangerous because if CSI has taught me anything, it's that human bodily fluids are fluorescent (laughs) under UV light. So if you start walking through a museum, just sort of shining it on every animal to see what happens, Mm -mm. you might find some stuff you weren't looking for. (laughs) That doesn't, (laughs) that seems dangerous. It does, but it could also pave the way to discoveries like platypuses. Yeah. Super weird, right? Or a murder that happened a few years ago that you didn't know about. Either one. Well, in the case of the platypus, they're thinking that this biofluorescence is likely an adaptation to low light conditions because remember, they're active during dusk and dim. Mm. So their glowing fur could be a way for the species to see and interact with each other at night when UV absorbance from fluorescence may be particularly important to mammals. And this is also really interesting from an evolutionary perspective because monotremes, marsupials, and placental mammals, they split off from a common ancestor about 150 million years ago when the Triassic was coming to a close. So that's a lot of time in possible evolution. So In the press release, they said it was intriguing to see that animals that were such distant relatives also had biofluorescent fur. And so they're closing the paper with another question, like good scientists, is biofluorescence an ancestral mammalian trait? Is it something we have like shed and lost over our years of evolution? Oh, now. Oh, man. Now I'm picturing like (laughs) glowing humans walking around the Serengeti. I like it. Right? Because if three wildly disparate groups of mammals retained this trait after 150 million years, it means the genes responsible for biofluorescent fur are highly conserved in the parlance of biologists. So Mm -hmm. it's not impossible, but another reasonable explanation could be that these three species acquired their glowing fur independently as a consequence of convergent evolution. Although I am personally in my non-scientific position biased to think we were all biofluorescent and just need to rediscover that. Mm -hmm. Well, and Mm -hmm. you said the word crepuscular, which is interesting to me because I just heard that word somewhere else. I learned that dogs are crepuscular because they're most active at dawn and dusk. Like you said, they nap all day and then they sleep at night Mm -hmm. as well. So now, like, I want to go check out my dogs. I want to get a UV light and shine it on them just to see. Just be careful what you find. You know they may have committed a dog murder. Oh, no. Oh. I'm sorry. That was darker than I meant for it to be. I meant, like, you know, with a bone or something. But that Honestly, really... I-, I wouldn't put it past one of my dogs. She's, she's pretty... Uh... <laughs> oh, that just wounded me in a way I was not expecting. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, this one comes from The Atlantic. It's called Survival of the Luckiest. It's basically a new-ish theory of evolution, which on the one hand upends everything we thought we knew. And on the other hand is so obvious that when I was reading it, I was like, well, yeah, duh. But (laughs) That's quite the spread. It does have some pretty wide-reaching implications. So we start with an extinct species, the so-called blue tigers of the Fujian province in China. 
Apparently, they were as blue as a normal tiger is orange. They were just these gorgeous animals. They're described in numerous accounts. They definitely existed. Explorers were still finding little tufts of blue fur on the trails as late as the 1950s. Wow. Yeah, but they're gone now, and no one really knows why. They definitely weren't overhunted, as no one ever captured a single one. We don't even have a hide from one. We just have all these accounts of them existing. And there weren't any obvious tiger diseases at the time, nor was their color any better or worse for camouflage than their bright orange cousins, right? The suspicion is that it was just random chance. There clearly weren't that many of them, and something happened that wiped them out that had nothing to do with evolutionary fitness. It just happened to them, which seems very reasonable. But the idea of a species dying out for no reason rather than some sort of inferior trait isn't really accounted for in evolutionary theory. So in 1968, geneticist Moto Kimura proposed neutral theory, which said actually most of the variation we see in a species is actually luck rather than selective pressures. At the time, it was largely rejected because it was seen as an anti-Darwin attack. Basically, it was Mm. a tool for those who were fighting against teaching evolution in the schools. Even though that's not what Kimura was saying, everybody was just like, no, 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 we're not going to talk about that right now. (laughs) But nowadays, we have computers that can analyze entire genomes and look at the statistical realities of genetic drift. And recent studies have pretty demonstrably shown that Kimura was right. It's not that natural selection isn't a pressure on evolution, because it very much is. It's more like natural selection is a poker player. And sometimes you just don't get Delta Queen, even when you could really Mm. use one. Or sometimes you get a queen, but you're going for, you know, a pair of threes. And so the Mm -hmm. queen is just not useful to you. Which all seems entirely reasonable, but it matters because huge parts of our evolutionary record are based on statistical models of what we think genetic drift looks like. So the article gives the example of a population of 10 birds, where one is green, one is red, and the rest are brown. And if you imagine a tornado suddenly comes through and kills six of the birds completely randomly, nothing to do with color, if the six it happens to kill are all brown you're suddenly left with a population where red and green have instantly jumped from a 10% prevalence to a 25% prevalence. Mm. And to a scientist looking at the historical record without any knowledge of the random tornado, it would look like red and green must have been a massive evolutionary advantage. And (laughs) so they'll start to make assumptions about what that might mean about the bird's environment or their predator's vision and countless other things. The nice thing is it does all come back to probability. And it's much easier to account for neutral drift if you know the size of the population, right? Because for 10 birds, you could easily accidentally lose six and dramatically change the prevalence. But if you have 300 birds, you're not likely to lose all the brown ones at once. You're going to lose some red and green ones in there too. Mm -hmm. So in May of 2020, a team led by Parul Jory at the University of Arizona published a new paper outlining a new statistical framework for figuring out what percentage of genetic drift is neutral versus what is selective. And like any mathematical model, it's very complicated, and the article doesn't even try to explain it. (laughs) But since then, a bunch of researchers from other fields have applied it to their own fields, and it's been successfully used to explain diversity in everything from cryptocurrencies to baby names. So anyway, that's it. It's just a a complete upending of evolutionary theory, and it makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. No big deal. (laughs) You know. (laughs) By the way, for anybody who does care to do a Google image search for Maltese tiger, be warned, you will see some furry art. Oh, no. Hmm. Ask me how I know. I didn't even think (laughs) about that. (laughs) Well, because at first I was like, oh, sweet, a blue tiger. And I know you just said the fur was found, but maybe I can see a sample of the fur. And nope, nope, nope. (laughs) Mm -mm. 
Well, okay. I, you know, maybe that's another instance of uh, evolution in humans that is going to. Uh, it's, it's a trait that is not providing any benefit, and we should... <laughs> I'm sure it provides some to some. I, I don't want to squick anybody's. That's whatever. right. No judging. <laughs> <laughs> just link. wasn't expecting that all right next link yes next, next link. link all right we're gonna switch gears a little bit from massive we have now learned that octopuses sometimes punch fish out of spite you know i think the fish might deserve it uh, that's just my guess <laughs> i don't know i i want to hear both sides well that yeah. <laughs> They really are smarter than humans. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the mysterious behavior appears related to collaborative hunting and, as we may infer, hints at complex emotions. Mm. So octopuses are super interesting, right? Like two-thirds of their brain cells are spread out inside their arms, which means each one can operate independently. They can, you know, change their texture and shape at will. If you've ever seen real-time camouflaging, it is Mm -hmm. like magic, right? Mm -hmm. They also apparently cooperate with other predatory fish when they hunt. You know, there are lots of different species that exhibit collaborative behavior in nature. For example, groupers and reef fish will often hunt with octopuses to cover more ground. They understand gestures from other fish, which helps the group capture prey. And now, for the first time, researchers have captured footage of octopuses punching fish, sometimes (laughs) seemingly for no apparent reason. They just want to remind the fish who's in charge. That's right. You have to assert alpha status in a group, especially when you're talking about interspecies groups, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. These researchers have been studying cooperative hunting events, and they filmed these interactions off the coast of Egypt. And these punches targeted different species of fish, which suggests that this behavior may serve an important function. Because when an octopus punches a fish, it exerts a small amount of energy while hindering an individual fish's hunt. That way, the fish might then lose their position within the hunt or might even be kicked out of the group. So in other words, no, you can't sit with us. (laughs) Or alternatively, this aggression might serve to deter fish from non-collaborative behavior. So stop that or I'll turn this car around, Mm -hmm. right? This behavior may stem from complex cognitive or emotional pathways, because we all know when you start to bully things, it is a sign of uh, higher evolution, right? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think we have to consider the trauma that the octopuses may have been through at home. I think that may be causing them to act out. Like, you know, you can't solve violence with violence. We need to talk to these octopuses. It's a cycle. It sounds like a case of like road rage or ocean rage or boat rage. I don't know. What do you call it? I mean, Gulf Stream rage. Yeah. (laughs) next link next Next link link. all right this next one is from the atlantic and it's called no one imagined giant lizard nests would be this weird (laughs) and giant lizard in this case refers specifically to the yellow spotted goanna which is a predatory monitor lizard native to australia that can reach up to five feet in length whoa and i do highly recommend you check out the picture it's a beautiful creature It's super brightly colored. It kind of looks like a cross between a lizard and a cheetah. And its tongue is out like three feet long. It's amazing. But it's also super deadly. And we should not be anywhere near it. Because, (laughs) uh, yeah, (laughs) even though the Goanna's natural range covers an area as large as Europe, it's a largely uninhabited part of Australia. So sightings Mm. had been rare. And in particular, no one had ever figured out where they lay their eggs. 
Hmm. So Sean Duty, a herpetologist from the University of South Florida, had spoken with Aboriginal Australians living in the outback who said they had caught pregnant female goannas next to what looked like burrow holes. But the holes only ever went about an arm's length into the ground and then they just stopped. Hmm. But in 2012, Duty found one of these burrow holes for himself. And he noticed that the dirt at the end of the tunnel was actually softer than the surrounding walls, which made him suspect that the tunnel actually went deeper and the goanna had just backfilled the entrance with dirt as a sort of protective door. So he and his colleagues started digging and digging and digging because the deeper they went, the more confused they got because (laughs) even the biggest burrowing reptiles usually only go a foot or so beneath the surface. What's more, the Gowana Tunnel started to spiral as it went downward. By the time they finally reached the egg chamber, this particular tunnel from 2012 was five feet deep, and Duty has since seen Gowana Tunnels that go as far as 13 feet beneath Whoa. the surface, all Ooh. with that same spiraling structure. He said, quote, that's a ridiculous depth. <laughs> <laughs> So his theory is that the goanna faces a unique challenge because its eggs have a relatively long incubation period of eight months, which means that they have to cross through Australia's brutal dry season, where several months can go by without any rain. And at shallow depths, Duty thinks the eggs would basically cook underground. So they have to go deeper to stay cool and damp all the way until it's time to hatch. He's also had the opportunity in recent years to witness the actual digging of a burrow. He says the female goanna first digs the short tunnel that biologists were familiar with, moving the dirt out of the hole and into a small pile. Then she goes in head first and starts effectively swimming downward, clawing the dirt in front of her and pushing it behind her. So she remains completely buried with just enough airspace in front of her to breathe. And that explains the corkscrewing, he said, because turning her head a little to one side enables her to hold a space open with her body that prevents the tunnel from collapsing on her face. Once she decides she's gone deep enough, she digs a little turnaround chamber, lays her eggs, and crawls back out the way she came, ultimately emerging a full seven to ten days after she first went under. The eggs stay buried and unattended in their little open chamber until they hatch, at which point the baby goannas instinctively dig straight up instead of following the path outward, which means this small litter of eight or so babies has to go through several meters of hard-packed dirt with their little baby claws that are not yet fully formed. Yeah. But somehow they do it, and they've also found that goannas will reuse the same burrows from year to year and often dig their spirals in clusters close to one another. They don't mind if their tunnels intersect and overlap, and Duty said they once found an area that contained more than 100 separate egg clutches at varying depths in a space the size of a small living room. Oh my god, it was a whole community. Yeah, he said they scanned the dirt and it looked like a mattress spring. Like it was just (gasps) spirals everywhere. Wow. The tunnels are also used by a wide range of other creatures, especially frogs, of all things, who endure the dry season by burying themselves in the soft backfilled dirt and hibernating for a few months before the goanna comes back for another laying season. And they couldn't do this if the dirt was still hard. They have to have that soft dirt that the goanna Mm -hmm. has already dug through. Duty said his team has also found other lizards, snakes, scorpions, centipedes, beetles, ants, and a mouse-like marsupial called the fat-tailed false antichinus using the tunnels, which qualifies the goannas as ecosystem engineers of continent-wide importance. Which, again, he says is very unusual because they are apex predators. Like half of these creatures that are using their burrows, the goanna will eat at the drop of a hat. 
But if they weren't building the tunnels, the frogs were going to die in the dry season anyway. So it's a very weird relationship that they have. But it matters because even though they are an apex predator who doesn't generally encounter humans and could definitely take one in a fight, goannas are dying out in some areas Mm -hmm. due to an invasive poisonous species of cane toad that was introduced into the Australian ecosystem by humans in 1935. And if the goannas go, all the species that rely on their tunnels start to go too. Wow. So, you know, they're really concerned. Obviously, this guy in particular wants to make sure the goannas are protected, both because he thinks goannas are really cool and also because the whole ecosystem would be thrown into chaos if we lost the goannas. I don't especially like the idea that there might be a goanna 13 meters underground, or thir- <laughs> 13 feet underground, like that's just prepared to dig up at any moment. It's like tremors. You guys ever see that? <laughs> yes, but it sounds like the goannas are so much more organized. I mean, tight spirals yeah. that join mm-hmm. together. I mean, so they'll all erupt at the same time. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Next link. Next Next link. link. Well, this article is from The Atlantic, and it's titled, One More Reason to Admire Elephant Trunks. Oh, I guess I admire them. Sure. There's another reason. Sure. (laughs) Well, if you're not already on board with admiring elephant trunks, maybe we can convert you with this article because new research confirms that elephant trunks don't just blow. They can also suck. Hmm. Didn't didn't we know that? Like, that's what Dumbo did with the peanuts. Like, he sucks up the peanuts and then he blows it. I understand it's a cartoon. It's not necessarily real. (laughs) (laughs) But it is based in reality. And finally, we've got true scientific data to really underscore the mechanics in a way that we hadn't before. So the African elephant trunk weighs in at, any guesses? How heavy do you think it is? Hundred pounds. Uh, they, yeah, Ooh. I'm gonna do a, a Price Is Right. 101 pounds, Bob. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jennifer got it. If we're doing that uh, <laughs> type it. of guessing, it weighs in at well over 200 pounds. Oh so wow, that's that's a big old schnoz. And yeah. we all know that they kind of ripple with thousands of individual muscles that help it do so many things, from lifting barbells to uprooting trees and even flinging bothersome lions in the air. All of those examples. <gasps> are hyperlinked, so if you have a hankering to see any of those, uh, definitely check out the article. I did not, (laughs) so those remain unclicked on my browser. But (laughs) let's talk about something different, like a tortilla chip. Okay. All right. The Atlantic says that a tortilla chip is an embarrassment of engineering. Why? Well, it weighs a fraction of an ounce, and it can measure less than a millimeter thick, and they snap really easily, right? I'm sure, Mm -hmm. at least as Texans, we understand the salsa guacamole heft. (sighs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) With so much sadness. But yet, a union between chip and trunk is not as impossible as it may seem. So an engineer at Georgia Tech named Andrew Schultz and his colleagues have caught on camera the absurd imbalance between an elephant trunk and a tortilla chip. And they described it in a paper published in the Journal of the Royal Society Interface. They found that the elephant would use its trunk to deftly suction it into its grip without breaking it. Oh. Hmm. Not only that, but when you see the video, it's not just the suction. Elephant trunks basically end in an almost pincher-like finger appendage, right? So Mm -hmm. they've got these Mm -hmm. kind of like two flaps that can dexterously move and grasp things, but 
really gently. So, you know, obviously elephants are not encountering a whole lot of tortilla chips in the wild, but <laughs> but it does help illustrate the biomechanical properties of trunks. Mm. So African elephant noses can inhale air at speeds of more than 335 miles per hour. What? Wow. <laughs> elephants are kind of sort of accomplishing a type of air bending. And I love that they dropped this reference in here, <laughs> which is a super rare skill among land animals. And their olfactory machinery is so sensitive that they can detect TNT better than most bomb-sniffing dogs. Hmm, right? Wow. The organization Elephant Voices documents no fewer than 250 separate trunk-related actions that elephants engage in, from signaling to snorkeling to pinching parents' genitals to get their attention. I can only imagine how effective that is. Yeah. And then the parent uses the trunk to whack the young ones. <laughs> They're so versatile, right? Yeah. So the Georgia Tech team went to investigate with the help of zookeepers at the Atlanta Zoo and a now 38-year-old African elephant named Kelly. <laughs> the researchers filmed her slurping up a slurry of chia seeds mixed into water. And then by tracking the movements of the seeds frame by frame, they were able to visualize how quickly water was entering her nostrils. And what they found for Kelly in her six-foot-long trunk it could expand to comfortably fit more than 5.5 liters of liquid at once, which is hmm. roughly wow. enough to account for every drop of blood in an average human body. <laughs> oh, that's a nice way to measure me. Yeah. That's right. She sucked like up that, that volume in about a second and a half. So let's hope we never get rampaging <laughs> carnivorous elephants. Um, or just, you know, a small cut around an elephant because they can just drain you right out of there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if they had a taste for blood, which I hope they don't, at least for um, so the researchers then crunched the numbers to approximate how air rather than water would flow into the same structure. And their estimate of 150 meters per second is about 30 times as fast as a typical human sneeze. Wow. <laughs> so when it comes to elephant air expulsion, they suspect it might be a lot faster, though they're not sure by how much. And that would also, they were quick to point out, produce a lot of snot, which may Ugh. be why they didn't fully <laughs> investigate that one. Yeah, it's not full of chia seeds at this point. Like. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to know if they could also blow out of their noses because, man, those poor lions. That's all I'm thinking about. Like. You know, it could be a defense mechanism like skunks have. <laughs> Maybe we could train elephants to suck up really gnarly stuff and sploosh it out just to keep other things at bay. Yeah, see, I think we're not being creative enough with the pushing it back out part like you can make those things flamethrowers oh, like no. you know they don't have to swallow it they suck in the fuel and then they blow it out and you know, yeah man you really took that to an apocalyptic uh, direction <laughs> sorry that's okay you know who knows we may need the help of our elephant brethren sooner than we realize that's right <laughs> next link next link. link all right well this one comes from studyfinds.org it's called Naked Mole Rats Speak in Different Languages Just Like Humans, study shows. Huh. So have you ever seen a naked mole rat? I feel like I have, and then I maybe blocked it out. Right, Because they're yeah. really weird looking, right? They're incredibly weird looking. They live underground in hostile desert regions like East Africa, and they're actually pretty ancient creatures as far as evolution is concerned. And over millions of years, they've built up these really weird adaptations, the most obvious of which is their complete hairlessness. Because, you know, they don't need fur to keep warm, of course, but since they live underground, they also don't need it to protect them from the sun. Then beyond that, their skin itself is actually uniquely adapted to living in these kind of dry, twisty little tunnels. 
It's super baggy and stretchy, and it makes it easier for them to wiggle around corners and tight passageways. And I, they look oh. like they have about twice as much skin as they need. I'm not going to lie. It's super gross. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sure that naked mole rats' mothers love them. But because food is so scarce, colonies of naked mole rats have to work together and share resources in order to survive. And scientists have previously observed them using systems of labor division and other kind of higher order social skills in their colonies. So they wanted to look at whether the squeaking and chirping noises they make could be translated, so to speak, and whether they were using these noises to communicate about more than just the basic, look, there's a predator or, oh, no, I'm in pain. Hmm. And what they found was pretty amazing and not exactly what they expected. So not only do naked mole rats definitely use different sounds to communicate different types of messages, but in fact, each colony has its own dialect. A naked mole rat can tell right away if another naked mole rat is from a different colony just from its squeaks. And actually, wow. they turn out to be pretty xenophobic. Uh, in the wild, <laughs> they will attack an outsider without hesitation as soon as they hear it squeak. Co-author Gary Lewin noted that human beings and naked mole rats seem to have much more in common than anyone might have previously thought. So, <laughs> you know, if you walk in with an accent, you're a goner in the naked mole rat colony, I suppose. Woof. Yeah. But so... Or squeak. <laughs> so in order to collect this data, researchers from the Max Delbruck Center for Molecular Medicine in Berlin recorded a total of 36,190 chirps made by wow. 166 individuals from seven different colonies. And the differences were too subtle for humans to distinguish, but they fed all the recordings into an AI program, which was able to distinguish eight sound characteristics, including things like the asymmetry of the sound spectrogram. And by the end of its training, the program was not only able to reliably predict which squeaks came from which colony, but also which squeak came from which specific mole rat. So they have voices. Wow. Like you can, you can tell which mole rat is your mole rat, I guess. And, you know, so they figured if the computer can do it, Maybe the mole rats can do it. And sure enough, yeah. they showed that the mole rats can recognize the voices of individuals that they know. And if they put two colonies together in a big container, they would quickly sort themselves into opposing sides and have like a little standoff, I guess. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's more, they showed that the dialect is largely dictated by the queen. As with ants, there's just one female in the colony who's giving birth at any given time. And when one of the researchers' colonies happened to lose two queens in quick succession, there was sort of what they described as a state of anarchy. And the range of that colony's chirps became much wider and didn't narrow down again into a recognizable dialect until a new queen had definitively ascended a few months later. So, wow. you know, they're taking their orders from the top, which is good social behavior. It makes sense that they would do that. But it makes you wonder. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like it's the Queen's English, basically. Our, our rulers define our language, I suppose, to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting that they immediately, like, they're just like, oh, whatever. Like, there's no more Queen. Let's just say whatever we want until we figure out who is the new ruler here. That's right. And then get in line vocally. <laughs> who even knows what our accent is anymore? Like, can you imagine if in the switch between one president to another, all of us lost our accents and started talking like we're from New Jersey <laughs> or Italy or who even knows? And then we we all settle in on whatever the new president 
president's accent was. Yeah, well, I mean, that's part of the reason why uh, in Spain, the Spanish they speak is with a lisp because at one point the king had a lisp. Oh, really? And he demanded that all Spanish speakers in Spain also lisp so that he wouldn't feel self-conscious. Right. I believe it's Spain, uh, but one country definitely does this. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Pretty wild. That's amazing. Well, if I ever become queen, I'll make you all talk like me. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I'll figure it out when the time comes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this bonus episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. As always, if you like our podcast and want to make our holiday season a little more festive, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.